Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona today with Jeff Colvin, who's the senior editor-at-large at Fortune and also the best-selling author of two fantastic books, uh, Talent is Overrated and Humans are Underrated. Uh, Jeff, it's great to hang out with you. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. <laughs> and we're in a particularly magical and picturesque uh, <laughs> desert. Yes, we are. <laughs> surrounded by cacti. Yes, plenty. <laughs> uh, Jeff and I were both speaking today at an um, uh, investment conference uh, to a bunch of people trying to think about the future of finance. But in many ways, you know, what Jeff was talking about has much bigger implications for almost every industry. Yeah. Uh, isn't it extraordinary that we've come to the time when we actually have to have the discussion that human beings are still important. Yeah, it is, uh, it is quite incredible. Uh, but there is so much anxiety now about what role humans will play in the environment because we see more and more jobs either being taken over by uh, technology or there is at least the threat that they will be taken over by technology. And I mean, the most obvious thing, that the one that's most in the news, has to do with self-driving vehicles. Because, uh, for example, here in the United States, the number one job held by American men is truck driver. Right. More American men do that job than any other job. Well, it's going to go away. It won't happen this year or next year, but it's going to happen. Even Uber drivers shouldn't feel too confident, right? They should not. And in fact, Travis Kalanick, you know, the founder and CEO of Uber, has been very open about this. They have hired many, many um, technologists, uh, software writers, robotics engineers. Yeah, from Carnegie Mellon. From, they hired the whole department, <laughs> as you probably... They hired the whole department from Carnegie Mellon because... Um, as Kalanick says, part of the cost of an Uber ride is what he calls the dude in the front of the car. Mm. And they aim to eliminate the dude in the front of the car. So, yeah, even Uber drivers cannot um, take solace in this. What are some of the other professions uh, that in some ways are not so obvious? Yeah. Because uh, it's, not, it's not just people loading boxes in factories and driving trucks. It's actually quite senior uh, it, 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 it can be, and, and that's a really important point. Because for years, the jobs that technology has taken over have been these sort of middle-skill, repetitive jobs. They could be in a factory, you know, welding something or moving boxes, as you say, or they could be in an office adding up numbers and things like that. But middle-skill, repetitive stuff. What's happening now is that technology is moving into much higher value work. And so, for example, uh, I know of at least three organizations that are developing autonomous surgical robots. Now, we talk about surgical robots a lot, but the ones we have today are not actually robots. They're tools that human surgeons use in doing surgery. What's being developed are robots that will be autonomous. They will do the surgery <laughs> all by themselves. 
Now this sounds terribly frightening, but I've spoken to the technologists, I've spoken to surgeons who say, yes, this is going to happen. The robots, and I've, yeah, I spoke not long ago to a patient who had had a certain part of his surgery done by a robot that was behaving autonomously. And was, it, was it eye surgery? It was sinus surgery, uh, actually. But okay. eye surgery is all is another great example. Yeah, because that's surely one that it's it's relatively simple yeah. and and can yeah. be automated. Yeah, and the precision that the robot can bring is far greater than any human could ever manage. I thought it was fascinating the comment you made uh, when you spoke to Peter Diamandis, who said yes. that you know not only will people accept it, they'll demand it. They'll demand it because it will be better than the human surgeon. Mm. Well, when you think about this... Not I the mean, bedside manner, though. No, no, no. Well, that, that's the human element. Yeah. I mean, honestly. So you mean surgeons will be really just there to keep people happy? To some extent, yes. <laughs> and, and this is no joke. We're seeing it in other fields already. For example, well, here we are, you and I, at this conference uh, for the financial industry. I speak to financial advisors, you know, the people whose job is to advise individuals on their finances. And of course, we're now in this era of what they call in the industry the robo-advisors, the computer-driven hmm. advice. Well, the fact is that computer-generated advice is at least as good as the advice you'd get from any person. In fact, it may well be better because the computer can consider more variables about you and about the markets and so forth. So what will be the role of these financial advisors? Well, what they tell me is they are increasingly psychiatrists rather than advisors because financial decisions are emotional decisions right. for all of us. They're difficult to make. It's almost like emotional triage. It is. I mean, it is like an emotional triage. Even when we know what we're supposed to do, we often won't do it because it's a, an emotional thing. The way the human financial advisor will add value, and it will be considerable value, is in getting people to actually do what's good for them and not to do what they want to do in a moment of panic, but which would be bad for them. <laughs> it's that human interrelationship. So, so in a way, it's not so much the advice. Right. It's the coaching. That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. Uh, same thing in law, by the way. Hmm. Increasingly successful lawyers will be the ones who can counsel their client, calm them down when they need to be calmed down, stopping them from doing something irrational that they want to do in this highly emotional situation, they, hmm. whatever it may be, a lawsuit or a divorce or whatever. <laughs> um, so, so those transactional that, elements just get automated. The, exactly. That's a relief. I mean, I, I studied to be a lawyer, and I think I spent most of my summers, <laughs> I, if I wasn't proofreading documents, I was yeah. looking for documents. Right. <laughs> well, that's not a human, you know, that's not even human work, but humans were doing it. It, it, it seemed like a masochistic exercise <laughs> to earn your stripes before they'd let, yes. they'd let you have an office. Yes, that's exactly what it was. Well, yeah. it's just not being done by humans anymore. Mm. So when you look at what has to be done by humans, yes. What are the skills that you think we will tend to hire for in the future if it's not necessarily technical competence? Right. Uh, and it increasingly is not technical competence. Um, the skills I think we'll hire for are, I identify three in particular. You, you can 
slice this in different ways, but I identify three in particular. The most fundamental is empathy, hmm. meaning the ability to tell what somebody else is thinking or feeling, whatever it might be, to discern what they're thinking and feeling and then respond in some appropriate way. That's the foundation of everything else. The second one is creative problem solving together in a group. You know, all the most important problems that we face have to be solved by groups. What makes groups effective? Well, there's good research and it says it isn't what we mostly think. It isn't the cohesion of the team. It isn't uh, the IQ of the smartest member. It isn't the motivation of the hmm. team. The key factor in team effectiveness is the social sensitivity of the team. The ability of team members to read one another, to figure out what you know, others are thinking, the other members of the team. That's what makes teams more effective than everything else put together, so that people will be hired for that. And the third one, which is somewhat surprising to many people, is storytelling. Hmm. This is not what companies have traditionally valued. We value charts and graphs. We value analysis of data. Those things will remain important, but technology does them <laughs> really, really well. And, and better than we do. <laughs> and better than we do. So where will we add value? Well, what we know is that if we want to change somebody's mind, if we want to motivate someone to act, all the data and logic in the world isn't nearly as powerful as telling them a story. What underlies all three of these is to an extent that most of the problems in the world are human-shaped problems. Yes. And humans are often the best to diagnose and interact with human-shaped problems. Yeah. I mean, the, the machine-shaped problems are logically ones taken over by machines. Right. That's exactly right. And in fact, talk to any company, whether it's in the technology industry or not, talk to the people at any company, the managers of any company that is being transformed by technology, which is to say virtually every company there is, and ask them about the challenges they face. Mm. The refrain you will hear universally, I have not yet found an exception, the refrain you will hear is, the technology itself is not our problem. The technology works fine, and when it doesn't work, we can fix it. It's not that hard. The problem is the people in the organization changing the way they work, the way they think, because the technology has changed our business model. Hmm. Changing the culture of the company because the technology is altering that. That's the real intractable problem that is separating the winners from the losers. It's, it's just as you say. It's really fascinating how culture has come full circle from being a very touchy-feely, yeah. nice to have, yeah. uh, to being really a dominant issue for most leaders. I, I, yeah. I think I, I once asked the global CEO of McKinsey like what he most worries about, yeah. and he said culture. Absolutely. And, and it was just a surprise to everyone, but I think you're right, in this time of change and transformation, that is the biggest thing enabling, but also holding organizations back. It absolutely is. And you're so right about how it has changed. I can remember when <laughs> big deal CEOs 
didn't even want to talk about culture. It was soft and squishy, and you couldn't measure it. And so, you know, a big deal CEO wasn't going to concern himself with it. Especially in a time of cutbacks and slashing That's right. costs and That's exactly right. engineering. That's exactly right. And now, every single CEO I talk to wants to talk about culture because they all know that that's what determines the difference between the successes and the failures. That's what determines the discretionary effort that you get or don't get from each person in the organization. That determines the choices they make going through their day from moment to moment. Hmm. And a lot of the CEOs realize that they don't have the right culture and they don't know how to change it. If you're a leader and you're drilling in to make sure your people have these three essential skills you spoke yes. about, the first, empathy and, I guess, social sensitivity are, are quite related. Yes. How do you test for that? I mean, what are the right. kinds of things that, if you're sitting there trying to work out how sensitive are my teams or how I've arranged the teams, right. what metrics could you focus on? Well, uh, there are, for one thing, a number of tests that uh, one can use that actually do test social sensitivity. And I mentioned a couple of them. I mean, there's the one that I put together myself called, which it is available online at roboeconomyquiz.com, which is, that was put together by me from some of the um, scholarly, the scientific uh, tests that have been created for measuring this. Uh, it's not the sociopath at the wedding test, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> no, that sounds like a fun one. Uh, I'll like give it to you later. We'll work out if you're a human being or a sociopath. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's another one that I like, which was created by um, a uh, guy at uh, Cambridge in Britain, which is called the Reading the Mind in the Eyes test. And you can find it any number, uh, any number of places online. Just Google Reading the Mind in the Eyes. And it's available. It's free. It's easy to do. And um, it, all it does is show you 36 photographs of simply the eye region of a person, different mm. person every time. And you choose from five choices, what is this person thinking or feeling? And then it tells you whether you got it right or wrong. And you will really, it's an eye opener to uh, take that test. I mean, if we can teach computers, you know, to recognize tiny objects, right. surely with enough data and machine learning, computers could get quite good at empathy. They're already quite good at it. And in fact, this is a subtle point that's very important. You're very wise to put your finger on it. Computers, we tend to think, well, computers can't do emotion, right? So that's what we'll do, because we can do emotion. Hmm. Computers can do emotion. And in fact, computers can now look at a person's face and figure out what that person is thinking or feeling. They can do more than that. They can look at a person's face expressing an emotion and judge whether that person is faking the emotion or is sincerely feeling it. <laughs> and they can make this judgment more accurately than humans can. And so you this is like the void conf test in uh, Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so you think, well, then, then we're left with nothing, right? But no, we are left with something because the computer can judge this, but it's just a one-way thing. The computer can look at the frame on the screen, judge it. They can, it knows how to identify every muscle in your face. 
It's looking at 30 frames a second. It can do this better than you can, but it's only one way. The human value is when we judge somebody else's feelings or thoughts and then respond in an appropriate way that that person takes in through all the different ways we take in another person. Right. And it becomes a two-way interaction. Almost like mirror neurons. That's exactly right. Mm. And it becomes, that's exactly right. And we, it becomes a two-way interaction that builds a relationship, builds a bond between the two people. Mm. That's the value. And part of this is probably connected to the third skill you've identified, which is storytelling. Right? Yeah. And, and I mean, you can understand the value of storytelling from a human uh, context. I mean, it's, it's how we're wired. It's how right. we've learned to understand the world. Yeah. But what does it mean in a corporate context? Uh, it's, it turns out to be incredibly value, valuable in a corporate context because what we've learned, what we all kind of know already, but mm. it's established well now, um, logic and facts do not ultimately motivate people to act. We do have to analyze data and analyze it very rationally and with rigorous statistical analysis. We have to do all that to make good decisions. But ultimately, in the end of the day, that's not what motivates people to act. Somebody said, it well, logic leads to conclusions emotion leads to actions. Mm. And if you want to motivate people, you want to inspire people to act, or if you want to change their minds about anything important, telling them a story reaches their emotions in a way nothing else can do. And the greatest leaders have always known this. It's not just about metaphor, though, is it? It's no. about selecting the right facts in the right order. Absolutely. To frame things. Absolutely. And in fact, storytelling is a skill. It's a real skill. That's mm. why it's on my little list. Because choosing the right story, framing it in the right way, structuring it in the right way. By the way, on this, as on so many of these things, the research is just fascinating because it shows that we seem to be hardwired to value stories that follow the classic story structure. Life's going along fine, then something happens to our protagonist, a conflict develops, hmm. things get bad, then they get worse, then the conflict becomes really terrible, it's resolved in some climactic situation, and then there's the denouement at the end of this. This story. is the Joseph Campbell it's, hero's journey. It is the hero's journey. It is every story that has ever been favorably remembered uh, that follows this structure. We, for whatever reason, we love that structure. And so telling a story that follows that structure is crucial. In some ways, so much of the current stories about disruption yeah. uh, are as much a framing of what's going on yeah. than anything else. I mean, yeah. we talk about yeah. Airbnb and Airbnb and Uber. Right. Once again, once again, it's that kind of 
the world is changing and there's, right. you, you, we're processing it as a story, but. It, that's exactly right. And in but there's fact, an assumption it's changing the entire world, but yeah. it may not, the frame may not actually be that big. You, that's <laughs> a, it's, it's quite right. It's partly the, the power of the story, right? It may lead you to see things as bigger than they are. This is the, the hero's it, uh, origin story. <laughs> that's right. We frame everything as a story. That's another thing that comes out of the research. Even when we simply hear a few facts, merely stated as facts, we turn them into a story in our own minds mm. because that's just how we are hardwired. And we, we remember things, we learn things by seeing them as stories. One of the essential roles that you've identified in organizations that have been successful and continuously innovative is the role of the integrator. Yes. Uh, could you walk us through that a little? Yeah, it's really important. Um, there is a frustration that I'm seeing in so many organizations now. They know they've got all these great people in the organization, and yet they know that they aren't getting the best of all these great people to create the fabulous, stunning, total customer experience that they could be creating and that they need to create to be competitive. It turns out that how this is done is becoming clear. And it is done through having someone in the role of the integrator. That is hmm. someone who brings together all the people who are going to create the elements of the customer experience, talking to them and choosing from each one, not necessarily the best thing that each one can create, but something from each one that will combine to create the best overall experience. And you may think, well, isn't that what we all do? No, in most organizations, the people who get together at the top are not the ones who create the experience. They're the profit and loss managers, the revenue managers, <laughs> the cost managers. The people who create the experience are down someplace else in the organization. And they may not speak to each other. But they speak to the customer. They speak to the customer, so they know everything. Yeah. But they never come together. Hmm. Someone who can bring them together and integrate all of their contributions. The classic example is Steve Jobs running Apple in creating the iPod, the iPhone, and everything else. That's exactly how he did it. And he talked about it openly. It's not a secret, but it's a different way of organizing and managing a company. And that's why presumably Sony struggled with it. Yeah, of course, this is the great story that's such a perfect case study. <laughs> Sony did not invent the iPod, but clearly should have, whereas Apple did invent it. Sony had every everything, every advantage. It was far bigger than Apple at the time. It owned a computer company, so it knew all the technology. It had a long history in audio, so it knew everything about creating beautiful sound. It owned a record company, so it understood about buying music and selling music, that whole industry. And it had created the concept of carrying your own music with you when they invented the Walkman in the 70s. They had everything, and yet they didn't invent it because, and it, this all came out, they were very open about it. Howard Stringer, the CEO, was very open. He said, all those pieces we had were silos, and there was no way we could communicate when we had all those silos. 
And Steve Jobs, when he was asked about it, said, yeah, it was integration, and it was the only way we can create perfect products. But arguably, Steve managed that. Yes. Because he, in some ways, wasn't that empathetic. <laughs> well, <laughs> people say that he wasn't very socially he, sensitive at all. <laughs> well, he's, he certainly had the reputation for being a jerk, to use the polite <laughs> word for it. And yet, he was empathetic in this sense. He could feel the experience that the customer was having. Ah. He could feel that experience in his bones. And that's why he took a deep interest, not just in the hardware and the software and the customer interface, but in how it all came together to create this whole experience. You know, he involved himself deeply in the packaging. <laughs> and anyone who has ever opened an Apple product immediately understands, mm -hmm. oh yeah, of course. I mean, opening an Apple product is unlike opening any other packaging you have ever encountered. And that was the beginning of the experience. He was involved in every part of it. So when you look at the 21st century organization, and you look at the rise of AI and automation and algorithms, yeah. which are not gonna go away, yeah. do you think we're going to have smaller companies that are made up of more emotionally driven people or we're just still going to have lots of human beings but dealing with more human related issues it's a very hard question because you could say that we're going to have smaller companies and you could uh, hypothesize reasonably that we might have companies that live for shorter periods of time hmm. maybe people, like a hollywood film like a hollywood film the hollywood model could become the kind of standard model on a broad scale um, and yet, at the same time, we are seeing some companies attaining the scale of nations by some measures. And so, for example, uh, you know, uh, Alibaba has more customers than America has people. <laughs> um, Apple, on any given day, probably has more cash on hand than the U.S. Treasury. Because <laughs> uh, the Treasury puts out a number at the end of every day, by the way. You can check this. Hmm. That's almost always the way it is. Google knows more about what's going on in the world by because it sees all the search results than any government. It can forecast where disease outbreaks are going to happen before they happen. Uh, IBM, now that it owns the weather company, has more data about weather than any government, than any other entity on Earth. Because, most people don't realize this, your smartphone, if you, you have a weather app on your smartphone, everybody does, well, it's almost 100% chance that that weather app is from the weather company, weather.com. Regardless of what it says on your screen, it's almost all, hmm. almost certainly their app. When you, you, what you probably don't know is that your smartphone includes a barometer. Your smartphone measures the atmospheric pressure. It, the weather company didn't make it do that, the, the Apple or Samsung or whoever, but it's in there. When you get the weather app and you accept the terms and conditions, which you do without reading any of them, of course, what you're agreeing to is sending the barometric pressure data from your phone to the weather company 
all the time. So that's why the forecast records are getting better. That's right. Because they have that data from tens of millions of phones around the world in real time. No government has that. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing these companies attaining the, the scale of nations. So how, what the balance is going to be, I have no idea. In a way, maybe we should be less worried about the robots and more worried about the companies. Yeah, well, maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. Because, I mean, look, there is separate research which shows that if Google wanted to influence the outcome of an election, like the U.S. presidential election, it could do so by making a little tweak to the algorithm that brings up search results on the names of candidates. Now, the researchers did this themselves for their research. There is no evidence, I hasten to add, mm -hmm. that Google has ever done it. But, the but Facebook has experimented with this. They have experimented. You know this too. Yeah, they 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 yes. they modified the timeline uh, based on people's emotional responses. Yes, to see if 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 it would change if they showed more happy or sad stories. Yeah, they've done that, and they actually in a 2010 they undertook an experiment where they tried to influence not how people voted, but their likelihood to vote, and they tried little things where like if one of their Facebook friends simply said he had voted, then did that increase the likelihood to vote? And they found that they could increase, they could affect likelihood to vote quite significantly. Skinner was really nothing compared to the, <laughs> compared to the world we're moving into now. Correct. But you're optimistic, aren't you, Jeff? I am overwhelmingly optimistic. And this is important to say because there are, <laughs> there seem to be so many reasons to be pessimistic. Now, there are so many threats we see. We're afraid that robots are gonna take all of our jobs. We're afraid that the economies of the world are just slowing way down on some long-term basis. We're afraid that there's more violence and conflict in the world. Um, yet if you stop and look at the unreported news, the fact that there are so many more ambitious, energetic, imaginative young people in the world today, so many billions of people who have been lifted out of poverty in the past 25 years, so many billions of people who now live in open economies where they can make the most of their gifts, so many more getting good educations so they can make the most of what they've got. Yeah, we still have a long ways to go, but things are so much better than they used to be. And none of that's in the news, but it's the reality. So yeah, I'm very optimistic. Jeff, thanks for sharing your thoughts today and uh, thanks for being on the show. My great pleasure, Mike, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. <laughs>